Welcome to Bedside Matters. This is the show that deals with breaking medical news and talks hopefully about the medical issues that you're dealing with and struggling with every day and we can give you some solutions to that so you can look forward to a more informed and healthier life. Dr. David Kipper is here. I'm Peter Tilden. With me is Dr. David Kipper. David, how are you? I'm good, Peter. And you? I'm doing very well. And Anna Vicino, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Producer Laurie's here, and we're all at different locations, but we're here. We've gathered together to get you more informed. And one of the things we're going to talk about today, this is fascinating to me, that electric shock to the hypothalamus, a part of the brain, actually got two women to stop binge eating for six months. And it actually changed, it changed not only their behavior, but their food tastes. I got to ask David about this because is this the future of dieting, you know, zapping, zapping the brain? So we'll find out. And also we're going to talk about there's a new uh, street drug that sounds very alarming. And I want to ask Dr. Kipper about this because uh, folks are getting sick, addicted to this drug. So we're going to talk about that. So there's a theme to this show that seems to be electricity because this is mind blowing. And this just happened. Electrical zaps helped paralyzed people who were severely paralyzed walk immediately with assistance. I got to ask David if these were paralysis that seemed to be irreversible. So we'll talk about that. And hey, what about me? We have a caller who wants to know about Chris Hemsworth because he got a diagnosis on uh, a show that he's doing that kind of put him in a weird place because he didn't know he's going to get a diagnosis, A, and do it on television. But he felt, you know what? Let me do it so that maybe I can help others. So we're going to address all of that. But David, let's start with the electroshocks to the brain as far as diet and attitude and binge eating. How'd they figure that out? So this is a very interesting study that they did at the University of Pennsylvania. By the way, there's another theme to this show. The word Pennsylvania is going to creep into this. A lot, <laughs> yep. And what they did was they took these two women that had failed every kind of dieting program, but were also binge eaters. And binge eaters are those people that eat very rapidly. They usually eat for a couple hours at a time. They feel out of control. They feel bad about themselves. They're depressed. They feel embarrassed. So this is a very difficult behavioral problem to address. And there are some medications we use, but this was really fascinating. What they did was they drilled a little hole, nickel-sized hole on each side of the skull, and they inserted uh, a little wire into two specific areas of the brain. And what they did was that they monitored these women and by the way, they didn't feel any of this. And it's a painless, the whole story from here on out will be painless and we don't need to feel sorry for oh, them. Okay, because when you said it's an easy procedure, you just drill two nickel-sized holes in each side of the head. Anna's, Anna's being revived and I'm throwing <laughs> up in my mouth. I started binge eating when I heard that. Oh my God. <laughs> I said this because I was getting a little scared as I was saying it. But that's amazing. So they don't feel anything. It's a painless surgery. They don't feel anything. And then there's a little device in the chest that's the electrical stimulator, and that's connected by a wire under the skin. And again, uh, this is not a painful thing. What they did was that they showed these women different foods that they might be interested in. So it could have been a chocolate chip cookie. It could have been a Swiss cheese sandwich. It could have whatever it was. And when they found those food items that they were attracted to, they passed like a little wand over their heads, and it registered into a specific part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens. And this is the area where our reward center sits. And they could see electrical activity in this part of the brain change. 
And frankly, what it did was it slowed down. So as these women were identifying their food preferences that were part of their binge eating program, they developed slow waves in this area. So they took that information and what they did was they increased some electrical activity when the slow waves were coming and they found that these cravings went away and these binge behaviors went away. So they're obviously going to have to reproduce this, but they have reproduced this in laboratory animals and it seems to be right and human studies are going on. But it's a very interesting way to approach these behavioral issues. I will say there's a direct relationship, we've talked about the neurotransmitters before, with binge eating and all behavioral addictions to dopamine imbalances. So one of the things we know about the physiology of this is is this electrical activity somehow uh, affecting dopamine? Is it Mm. stimulating more dopamine production? We don't know this, and this wasn't part of the studies, but this association will be made as we go forward. Binge eating is is potentially lethal. People die from this. When people binge eat, is it a, is there a length of like if I eat quickly but I eat for three minutes, is that's not considered a binge? It has to be couple hours. Couple hours. Yes, and there are reported cases where the intestines actually burst because they're so filled. Okay, got it. I, I didn't realize it was to that extent. I thought binge eating is oh wow, I feel bad. I sat down and ate half an Entenmann's cake. This is like. There are degrees of binge eating, but we do see binge eating behavior in people that have other dopamine behaviors. Which, unfortunately, a lot of people do that every day because exactly. I, I, I talk to the people in, in the low-carb world who are coming from that, and it's, it's really tough to peel back the, the layers of that onion. David, when you have somebody who is a binge eater, does that also have to involve maybe bariatric surgery, whatever you can, but does that also counseling? Is that also behavioral counseling? Absolutely, because it is, again, it's a behavior that is created in our neurochemistry. So it's intrinsic, it's inherited. So this is really behavioral modification at its scariest level. Well, what's its scariest level is, I got to get Elon Musk's name into this because he commented because he wants to do that Neuralink brain implant. And he said, once people have that, he can do the same thing by putting out electrical waves to have you not eat as much. I mean, he's planning on... Or, or buy a Tesla. Or, buy, or whatever. <laughs> All of a sudden, I really want to get a Tesla, and there's two nickel-sized holes in the side of my head. I don't know. <laughs> but if you can extrapolate this to other behavioral problems, it's fascinating. Because, yeah. again, they took several months to figure out what part of the brain, what specific inciting events created these changes in the brain waves. So I believe that this will be extrapolated into other behavioral problems. So David, I know a number of people have bariatric surgery. It works at first because they get sick and it dumps if they eat too much. I know so many people have had the bariatric surgery and have eaten past it and gained all the weight back again. Is that a common thing with bariatric surgery? Or, yes. Or- it's almost predictable, Peter, that after a year, there's been some weight loss. You look at these people a year later, and they're putting their weight back. Because for what you just said, the behavioral thing hasn't changed. Yes. Oh, man. Again, this is just my anecdotal observation, but having been in the low-carb community, for there's so many people who come who have had multiple, sometimes multiple surgeries, but who have had that. And then the thing that I've observed is that 
like you're talking about with the, the going to therapy, basically having some behavioral therapy. If you take all those physical actions, like the surgery and the changing your diet, but if you're not addressing what's the underlying cause of stuff. You got the problem. There you go. It's still lurking. It's lurking. It's still lurking. Okay. So this is really frightening because I didn't think there was anything scarier on these streets than the fentanyl. And now there's something called trank dope out there. And uh, I guess it's an animal tranquilizer. I don't know how to say it. Xylazine. And what is this thing? How are people getting it? I actually go to the local, because I live in the country now, so I go to the local feed place to get our dog food, but they also have the stuff for the horses and the goats and the things. So is, is that something you can just get it that like, are people getting this or is it like a street? Like, what is this drug? Why is it so scary? I read an article about it and it terrified me. First of all, you can get this online, so you don't even have to go to the pet store. And that's part of the problem. But xylazine is a veterinary sedative. It basically, it slows your heart rate. It just calms the system. It's different than the opiate of fentanyl or heroin, any other opiate. So there's two different products that are sedating the central nervous system, and it's extremely dangerous. Given by itself, xylazine by itself, it can have very serious problems, and it's a very hard drug to identify in a blood test or a urine test. So there are no assays for this. There also are no treatments for this. So if somebody ends up in the emergency room with a trank overdose, we don't know what to do with these people because if it was purely opiate, and we've talked about naltrexon before, how it empties the opiate receptors and all that opiate comes off. Uh, This is a combination of an opiate and the xylazine. So the opiate would come off if we gave naltrexone, but the xylazine has its own different receptors. So it's almost impossible to treat. It's impossible to identify. So you don't know if somebody comes in and they're toxic, you don't know if it's heroin, you don't know if fentanyl, or if it's also this. And the thing that really blew me away, and don't take any pride in the fact that this is rooted in Philadelphia, started in Puerto Rico, but really big out of Philadelphia, which is why David said Pennsylvania is going to weigh into the show occasionally. But it spread in 40 states, they said. And the scariest thing I read was when you're buying street fentanyl or heroin, 90% of the samples that were tested also had this in it. What is really? going on? It's another thing that's being used to augment the effect of the opiate. So Um, someone might sell this as a super opiate or a super fentanyl. And there are enough people out there that are willing to try this and more than enough people that aren't paying attention to where they're getting this. I think anyone that buys a street drug understands there's some risk. Right. But it doesn't slow them down. So if you think about what that means, and most of these drugs have an addiction potential. And after a while, there's a physiologic addiction to these drugs. So someone that's addicted to an opiate comes across trank dope, and they're told that there's fentanyl or heroin in that they're in. So question for you, Doc, because as if you didn't say enough things to deter you, deter one from wanting to go procure this new drug, it's apparently causing skin damage and lesions and is it like why would a drug cause wounds is it why would it be necrotic remember the drug is used in the veterinary community so we see these changes not only in humans but in the animals so it can cause ulcerations it can cause ulcerations that lead to amputations gosh and again it's it's got its own problems if you just took 
xylosine without any opiate in it, and you were trying to get rid of this in your system, it would take over three weeks for this to come out wow. of your system. So it's got a very long lifespan in the system. And can you imagine being this compromised for three weeks? It's pretty horrifying. And I don't know, I want to shout out all the people out there who are working to get people off of these kind of drugs, because it's some real stuff. And, and to people in households who have addicts that they are dealing with. Yeah they should know this and they should pass along for whatever. I mean, it, it may deter somebody. That's why we did it. And it, it is, I can't believe it's in 40 states. We're going to talk about electrical again, since we talked about it, zapping, zapping two women into, diet, into dieting. This one, it's hard to believe that they helped paralyze people with electrical zaps actually walk again immediately. Nine people walked immediately again. And David, are these people that up to that point, they thought could not, they just never walk again. They would never function again. This was irreversible, what they had. Correct. And this has been a problem forever. I mean, we've never really been able to tackle this issue. Peter, I don't know if you remember this. I'm sure you do. However, Peter and I would do an annual abilities fair in downtown Los Angeles, where it was for compromised people that had spinal cord injuries, that had other neurologic injuries and were incapacitated. And one of the demonstrations, do you remember this, Peter? It was a guy who was completely paralyzed, put on this robotic suit, and he presses a button, and it makes him stand, and he could walk, and he's standing up. And the great thing, he said, is that I, I relate to people differently when I'm their height, because when you're in a chair, they talk down. It just changes the dynamic. But the thing that got me sad and got me off kilter was it was so Robocop. It was, mm, the noise and the amount of hardware was so unsettling at that point, because it was a pretty hefty thing. Not only that, but the people he was relating to at that point were all NBA players. But can you remember this suit was about 11 feet yeah, tall? Yeah, it was so unsettling. The whole thing was amazing, and it really overwhelmed me emotionally, because this poor guy, young guy who was in an accident, it's walking. But on the other hand, wow, what it, what it took. And now we have the potential for all of these people that have had these injuries, this is going to be huge, to go after this, what's called EES, it's epidural electrical stimulators. And what they do is they take on the spinal cord, there's a coating over the spinal cord on the outside, it's called the epidural tissue. People talk about getting an epidural for back pain or for leg pain. This is the epidural space or the epidural tissue is what lines the spinal cord. So they actually can locate where the recovery problems are in the spinal cord. This is how they did this. They created a 3D map of the area in the spinal cord that was damaged. And they looked to see how this area recovered. So they did this in people that had acute spinal cord injuries. And they measured all these different cells to see exactly which areas or which cells were involved in the recovery process. What they found was a very specific area that responded to the recovery process. And by zapping that area, this was called the V2A gene. When they located the V2A gene, it was involved in the recovery for spinal cord injuries. Interestingly, it wasn't involved at all with walking. It was just involved with spinal cord repair. So they isolated this gene, and then they zapped this electrically. 
And what they did was that they basically rebooted the computer in that area because all the uh, neurons in our nervous system connect in different pathways and they go to the brain and then from the brain, they go to the other parts of the body to move them to feet so we can feel, breathe, all these things. They identified this gene, which was specific to the recovery process. They zapped it, so they supercharged it and it created a bridge over the damaged area on the spinal cord. So it connected good tissue on one side over the damaged tissue to the other side where there was good tissue, and it worked. That is stunning. So wow. somebody's hearing this now, and they're, they're, if somebody in the family is paralyzed or they're paralyzed, should they all get their hopes up, or are there certain candidates that are more apt this, for this to be successful for than others, and some that it will never work for? Or is this somebody who's quadriplegic for a long time, many years, and it doesn't matter? I think that it doesn't matter. I think that's what we're going to find out. I think that these trials are going to be open to everybody. And it's I, I'm an optimist, so I'm looking at this as great news for everybody that's been suffering from that's this. Stunning. That's amazing. And if you think about all the different things that happen when you paralyze part of your spinal cord, it's not just ambulation. It can be your bowel habit, your bladder habit, your sexual habits. So I think this is a very, very promising study, and I'm really excited to see where this goes. David, is this because of mapping? The technology is more advanced than that. What, what moved this ahead in leaps and bounds? That specifically? That's exactly what it was, Peter. They were able to create, and we're, be, we're doing this now more and more in the nervous system. We're creating these 3D maps. And with the maps, we're able to study things in real time, which is what they did. They also went to mice. Usually we go from mice to men. This time we went from men to mice. And they studied all this in mice, and they had the same reproducible benefits. It's I hope that this is on the fast track. So, David, we have a caller who wants to talk about or ask about the story that broke this week about Chris Hemsworth and that he got some news. Caller? Hi, Dr. Kipper. My name is Dick. I was recently watching a show where Chris Hemsworth took a memory test and discovered that he had an increased likelihood of developing Alzheimer's. My question is, if you receive this kind of information, is there anything you can do to prevent it? Thank you. Dick, it's a great question. And this is a problem with serious genetic illnesses that we really don't know how to prevent. The difference here is that there's been so much research with Alzheimer's. We know, we've known for a long time that the APOE gene is associated with Alzheimer's. Interestingly, 25% of people of European ancestry carry one part of this gene, or they carry uh, one of these uh, gene copies. You need two gene copies to be at very high risk. So there are 2% of people in, in the United States, actually, that have both copies of that gene, and they're at 8 to 10 times higher risk of getting Alzheimer's. So you can do, as you said, Anna, the 23andMe, and you can determine whether or not you have the APOE gene. There's three of these genes. One is the APOE4. That's the one we're talking about that has an increased risk. There's actually an APOE2 that has a protective effect. 
So it's interesting when you do your 23andMe that you make sure you look at the number after the APOE because you actually may be in good shape. So what we do with people that are predisposed to these genetic problems is to look at where we are with the research, look at what we do know. And what we know is that at this point is that regular activity, all the things they tell you to do on television, get good sleep. These are all very important risk mitigators for Alzheimer's. People that don't sleep, this is sort of interesting, people that don't sleep, they're not cleaning the brain when they're not sleeping. So one of the reasons we need deep sleep is to clean up all these proteins, the amyloid and the tau proteins, they get eliminated during this restorative sleep. And if you're not getting good sleep, these things are building up. So this is one theory that uh, a lack of sleep is connected to Alzheimer's, and it actually makes sense. We also know that there have been many ways to attack Alzheimer's. They've come up with a couple drugs that they had great promise initially, but they really didn't bear out. We're looking at the targets of the amyloid and the tau proteins, but we're not even sure that's the problem, so we don't know where that's going. The point is there's a ton of money and research going into this disease because if you think about the demographic, these are people over 65, and there are a lot of people in this country over 65, and the drug companies happen to be aware of this. And so there's a great need for this. So if you're a younger person, Anna, let's take you as an example. You're yeah. a young person. You Thank do you. your 23andMe. Well, you're, you're I, I'm looking at my 23andMe in the APOE gene. Zero variants detected. However, it could easily go another way. We don't know. Right. But, but again, to Peter's point, let's say that it, you weren't lucky in that regard, and then you freak out and you call your doctor and your doctor goes through the lifestyle things that you should be doing and nobody pays attention to that. <laughs> right. But I do think that if you, and six cups of coffee, by the way, is supposed to be protective for dementia and Alzheimer's. So my feeling is, Anna, in, in younger people, there's going to be much more information coming down the chute. There's a great carrot out there for whoever comes up with some kind of solution to this problem. And there are some really interesting research trials going on. So at this point, you can identify that you're at risk. You can look up everything you should do to keep yourself healthy and just wait for something that's coming down the chute, which I do think is going to happen. Or open a lab in your second bedroom. It's funny that you drink six cups of coffee, which would keep me awake which keeps me sleep deprived and then contributes. And then you have to get your deep sleep somehow. To my my Alzheimer's diagnosis. But that was cool that he did it. It was cool that he he chose to, they said, we we can either not give you the diagnosis at all. We don't have to bring it up or we can do it privately. And he said, no, do it so that it helps other people. How how did he react? He was pretty freaked. You know, I didn't see the episode I read about and I heard he was pretty thrown that he, because the guy looks, I mean, he's slower. He's in peak shape right now, yeah. There's no better shape. This guy is doing like SEAL stuff. He, they're doing putting him through all this stuff because he wants to see if he can take it and, and what the risks are. And it's a, an interesting series, and they're probably paying him a fortune. But aside, aside from that, um, he said, no, let's do it. So he was pretty thrown. Other, other things you should think about would be your family history. If you have two parents that had Alzheimer's, you are not destined, you're likely destined to get this at a young age. So you really have to do these studies and do what you can to 
be preventative for what we have now and going forward. So there is a genetic link to this disease. But I, do, I really do feel very optimistic that we're going to have some treatments for this and some preventative practices that will mitigate this. You said because there are so many 65 plus out there and it's dollar signs, they're knocking over the diet guys <laughs> to, get to, to get to this. Right, exactly. So it's obesity in that. You know, it's interesting too, when, when you look at the 23andMe stuff, which is pretty cool that we can do that, you know, and be able to have that sort of information at our disposal. But you're, you're right. You have to be ready to want to see it. You know what I mean? You might not be psychologically ready to see it, but I thought it was interesting for me, not having that APOE gene, but having a likelihood of developing type two diabetes. And I know that that's, you know, a blood sugar regulation issue, which can affect the brain health too. So it's like, when I see that I go, and I already know that like, if I, at my age, if I eat too many sugars, I get the higher A1C. So I, I just watch it, you know, for me. And so I think it's interesting that like, okay, well, I don't have that one, but I have this one, which could, you know what I mean, like could get me into other trouble down the line. So it's, it's almost like dodge that bullet, but did you dodge the other one? Maybe not. I don't know. It makes sense to just try your best anyway, because something's going to try to get you once you get a certain age. Right. I mean, am I being fatalist here? Yes, and it, it also brings up that discussion about do you want to know? And a lot of people, it's true with all these other diseases, as you mentioned. I was in training, and one of my residents' father had Huntington's Korea, and those people don't live very long. Oh. They're, they're gone in their 40s. It was his father, it was his uncle, and it was one other male in the family. And it's one of those recess, those dominant uh my goodness. Recessive genes, you have to have both of them. Same kind of concept that we're talking about with Alzheimer's. And imagine what that would be like to, to live your life knowing that, you know, the curtain was closing any minute. Unless people process it a different way or think they're the one who's going to beat it or they're so, you know what I mean? However, however you wrap your head around it. I'm sure there's some who just in denial and, you know. The other way to look at this is that people live recklessly. Remember what happened when the AIDS epidemic was out. We had no treatments and we had no hope right. at that point for a long time. A lot of people that were infected decided they were just going to live their life and they cashed in all their resources and they lived high in the hog for, you know, as months. Could, and yeah. then all of a sudden this, you know, these drugs come out and there was a a whole lot of people out there with this diagnosis that were now broke and wow. had no more resources. This mm. was an interesting fallout Jeez. from having this great discussion. But I get that. I get that you just say, that's it. Where am I Where am I going? Hey, thank you for joining. It's another, we've completed another successful episode. Can I say one thing to the people out there? If you want your question answered, you should go to bedsidematters.org and, and, and fill out the little cards and letter form that we have there. And Dr. Kipper might just answer your question. Absolutely. You're sick and tired of being sick and tired? Follow us on bedsidematters.org. And the most important thing, David's book, Override, which is based on all the new information on neurotransmitters. You want to change how you live your life. It's fascinating. And Anna's got two books out, Eat Happy and Eat Happy Too. Great cookbooks that are grain-free, gluten-free. And I got to tell you, you go to her website, it's V-O-C-I-N-O, Anna dot com, And I laughed my butt off because she's got some of her stand-up on there, too. Really, oh, really. Oh, the stand-up's really funny. Great sauces, great rubs. So uh, the site is a joy. You did a good job on the site, and that's very cool. Well, and I didn't do I hired a guy. I have a guy. Like, I can't I do that. But they did a good job. You, David, the stand-up is really, really funny. Really funny. 
Thank it's you. all about couples and relationships. And your husband makes a brief appearance even. Kind. Yes, he and I are currently doing a two-person act about marriage and long-term relationships because I'm tired of watching male stand-ups talk about their wives and then they don't. the wives don't get to chime in. I want to hear. Wait a minute. The wives don't get to chime in? I want to live in that place. <laughs> Where is that place? <laughs> Too bad. You come to our show, you get both perspectives. Thank you, Anna, for today, and Dr. Kipper thank and producer you. Laurie. Thank you, and thank you for listening. You're sick and tired of being sick and tired? Follow us at bedsidematters.org, and uh, we'll see you next episode. If you have a question for Dr. Kipper, you can go to our website, bedsidematters.org, and leave a voicemail or submit a question. The information on Bedside Matters and the resources available for download are not intended as and should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on Bedside Matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.